Hey everyone, thanks for joining. I'm really excited today because I'm speaking to Lucas Lynch. Uh, Lucas is the commissioning editor for Aereo Magazine. He was also the editor-in-chief at Conardis. And uh, I really like a lot of what he has to say about politics, just general public discourse, and you know, uh, follow him on Facebook and on Twitter and always got interesting takes. So welcome, Lucas. Thank you very much for coming on. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, so I was talking to you about this a little bit earlier and basically what I'm trying to do here. And this is, I started doing this, I got this idea purely for selfish reasons. And um, I was working overseas and I got back, and I was working in, in war zones and I was working on military bases. I got back to North America, uh, well, Montreal, uh, spring of 2014. And that's when I saw the insanity on social media. Like I'd, I'd never really spent a lot of time and I just, everything was just getting ratcheted up. Um, I got caught up in it. Uh, for me, it was um, more of a thing about Islam because I saw a lot of straight out lies or just confusion and, you know, people trying to muddy the waters. And not that I'm any expert by any means, but, you know, I was raised in that faith. I left it. And so I started just pretty angry, I guess. And over the last year or so, I would just, you know, year, year and a half, it's like, okay, this is not the way I was before. This is not, you know, how I talked about things. And these weren't even really things I discussed too much. Um, so I just thought if I could speak to people who I found interesting or whose takes I liked, and even if people who I found interesting and whose takes I didn't like, but just at least, you know, they were willing to talk to maybe strengthen my own idea of what first principles are, maybe, you know, if they need to be changed, change them. But just like I said, for it, it, it was basically just for me to see if I'm taking things on the correct path. So that's basically, I, I've got you on here as a free shrink, I guess. Yeah. Well, so, so let me understand how long then. So first of all, when did you come back from overseas? Uh, I got back to Canada, March of 2014. Okay. And, and so, and you, and you were not allowed to use social media at all. So you were off for approximately how many years do you think? Well, okay. I, I left before social media was even a thing. I left in 2002. Oh wow! Right, so I joined Facebook. So I mean, I, I, re, I you know, I, like there was what uh, MySpace and Friendster before that. Um, you know, I, I was never really on that. I didn't even really know much about those. You know, I can go back to like old ICQ chat. Like, I mean, that's how far back I could talk about. You, 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 you keep it old school, so to speak. Yeah, well, okay, like I, I did do that, but it was so I, I came on and it was um, I joined Facebook because I was so I, I started working overseas with the Canadian military and then um, with NATO and I was in war zones. So I started off in Bosnia, then went to Afghanistan. Um, I was I was all over the place. I was in Kosovo, I was in Sudan, I was in Haiti after the earthquake. Um, but yeah, on a lot of the bases, they wouldn't allow you to have social media because they didn't want people to know. Like you could just make an innocuous comment, right? I'm going home tomorrow and I'm leaving from Kandahar or something or whatever. And not that it's, you know, don't you're in a war zone, you're under, you know that all your stuff is being monitored one way or another. And if it's not encrypted, if it's not, and, and something innocuous like that could have the potential of 
putting people in harm's way. So that's why social media wasn't really, um, you know, they didn't allow it on the basis. They allow some of it now, but very, very restricted. Uh, and then, <clears throat> all right, that cut out again. That's okay. So basically, I'm trying to think of who, who, who is it? Is it Rip Van Winkle that's asleep for 20 years? Or I can't remember what yeah, story yeah, it's it is. Rip Van Winkle, he sleeps for 20 years and he wakes up and everything's Yeah, changed. so... So on the internet, you were basically somewhat Rip Van Winkle, and you came back just about the time that everything started to break, um, so to speak. Uh, you know how you were talking earlier about, you know how you, your beliefs around individual liberty and things like that. But but you came back to the internet just when things really started to get bad in a mainstream way. Um, that's about the time that I started getting more active as well, uh, for different reasons, obviously. Um, but it's been really interesting meeting and talking to ex-Muslims like yourself because I feel like people like you really get just how broken it is in a way that a lot of people like me don't understand just because it seems like being an ex-Muslim, you're at the intersection of so many conflicting ideological currents. And because of the things that people like you have to deal with, speaking out about the contradictions and why the contradictions are important, it seems like to you the importance of it isn't just theoretical, it's deeply, deeply personal. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, okay, the way I look at it is more, um, I'm just going to start this off by saying, like, anything I say here that makes it sound like I'm claiming racism or that I'm claiming victimhood status or anything like that, I'm not. I find that really appalling, but it's just a, a feeling, all right? So my family moved to Canada when I was six. Uh, my dad specifically did not want us to live in a neighborhood that had already started to be ghettoized for South Asians. Not that he didn't, you know, my dad loved the fact that he was from India. He would talk about the history with us. I mean, he he, he always, always planning to move back there after he retired, you know, all of it, right? So, but he wanted us, he's like, we moved to Canada. This place took us in. I want my family to integrate and assimilate. I want to be part of this society. I don't want to hide out from this society, right? So that was the first thing for like, you know, it was our father teaching us this. And, you know, even my, you know, like my, our parents, it, w it wasn't just, you know, my dad, it was both our parents. Um, but, and this is where I'm, like I said, what, I, what I'm saying might be sounding like I'm, I'm claiming racism. But so I'd go over to friends' places and we were the only, you know, if not the only South Asian family, the only non white family in some neighborhoods, right? So we would go over and friends' parents would ask us things like, oh, are you allowed to eat this or are you allowed? because you know I would mention things like I can't eat pork I would be like one of the first things I would say sometimes just you know so like if they were saying come over for lunch or whatever something like that right so the, there was always these questions so not that I wasn't accepted and not that but it made you feel like an outsider and then when I would go back to India I didn't know all the little peculiarities and all the little nuances and day-to-day -day, you know the protocols of day-to-day -day functioning you know when someone comes in do you offer your hand to shake, you know, offer a, a shake hand, things like that, just little things, like little niceties and politenesses that, you know, I was growing up in North America and that's what I was picking up. And so I was, felt like, and was treated like an outsider there. But I, you know, obviously when, when you're that young, you don't really think about these things like that, but I was picking up both ways of life. You know, we'd go back to India regularly. My, you know, we had some of those things at home in the house. Um, and then whatever was going on in North America. And so I was kind of an outsider, but I was, you know, especially in North America, I was living there, but I, I looked at it from, okay, these are the values that are 
being told to us. We did have things like civics classes back then where they talked about, you know, civil liberties, the, the laws and the, the norms of the country and whatever. And so it, it told you, like, you know, this is what you need to be to a good citizen. Um, you know, they talked about what your rights were, but they also talked about what your obligations were. So because I was kind of an outsider, I liked, I looked at them objectively, I think, a little bit more objectively than someone who was born here or someone who comes here and just completely claims whatever it is to be Canadian or American or you know, whatever, like whatever nationality, right? So I, and that's how I looked at it. I'm like, okay, these are much better values than what I see in India. And then I was, I've always had happy feet. I started traveling really young. The first time I flew by myself, I was 14. Um, and I went to Europe and I, I, and I have always traveled. And then my work overseas took me all kinds of places and they paid for my plane tickets. So I took good advantage of that. And, you know, I've been on every continent with the exception of Antarctica. So, you know, I've liked that. And it just, for me, it was just looking at it objectively from an, as an outside, sort of as an outsider and just seeing, you know, like this is the best system that we have. Yeah, I liked what you said earlier about being able to view certain things objectively. And, and I think part of the problem now is there's this widespread belief that such a thing is just impossible, particularly when it comes to moral or economic or political systems. And Lord knows, as you were saying earlier, you should have some perspective on this because you've lived near or under uh, so many different kinds. And, you know, it, it, it's just interesting to hear you talk about whether a set of values are better and whether or not a set of let's just call them Western values. It doesn't really matter that they originated in the West, but the fact that you say that those are better values, this is, you know, I can't get away with saying things like this without getting a lot of flack because, you know, I'm, I'm defined as the enemy, the cis, the cis white male. And how dare we assert that certain axioms are better than others. But it, 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 again, this is why talking to ex Muslims is so interesting for me because you're situated in a place where you are in a position to talk about it more objectively and to a certain degree people have to listen and and it's important that this is a debate we really have because undoubtedly there are some axioms that are better than others and yeah. sorry go ahead no no uh so for about a generation now people like me you know and i i always consider myself like i am the epitome of the guilty white liberal that grew up in the east coast of the united states so you know, I've, I've just been trained from the time I was a kid that, that I'm supposed to be ashamed of this cultural inheritance and supposed to just sort of genuflect before all of our problems. And I, I think it's gotten to a point where we're so obsessed with whatever the historical problems may have been that people like myself are no longer able to view these moral systems in, in as objective a way as maybe you were able to view it. And, and, and without sort of... Uh, without any value judgments pre-attached to them. And it sounds like growing up, you know, you had all of these different influences and you were able to kind of step back and just weigh the two and say, okay, what's better here? What's better there? And just sort of take what you wanted. And we sort of have it as a religious axiom that you just cannot do that with anything that originated out of the, out of the West. That's a pervasive feeling that's going on in the West. Um, and I don't understand it. It's, I, I'm not saying to glorify, okay, the values of the enlightenment, those are, great things, the advances in science are amazing things, the, the advances in technology, all that. And lay claim to it, you know, this came out of this, you know, this came out of this thought process. It didn't come out of any one 
culture specifically. It didn't come out of any, but it came out of this thought process. It came out of this way of looking at things. This is the best way we've got, and this is the most advancements we've had. Like look at any system throughout history and just say, okay, the the system of the enlightenment and the values that it tried to enshrine, um, you know, and there are many problems with some of the, you know, like the, the writers of it and all that. But like, if you look at all that and you say that, okay, this is the most advancement we've had. And, um, sorry, I'm, I'm just rambling here. So you look, and then you look at any other system you've had and just say, okay, what has that system done? Where has it gone right? Where has it gone wrong? And you can, you can, you can revel in that. You can be proud of that you're a part of that tradition. You can't lame, claim ownership of that and then not claim ownership of all the bad. And that's, I think that's where the problem is. People want to claim ownership of everything that's bad, apologize for it, you know, flagellate yourself for it and, you know, beg forgiveness. But when you, people talk about, okay, well, there was good that came out of the system as well. I mean, all systems have good and bad. All systems lead to horrific things. And just because enlightenment thought was around at that time and it was growing and it's still growing and changing and adapting, you know, you still had other things. You still had, uh, you know, an imperial system. You still had, uh, people were still thinking with the mores of the time. And I'm not trying to be relativistic or anything here, but yes, you know, colonialism was horrible, but then certain good things did come out of it. And so, like I said, don't, don't do what either extreme is doing, like the, you know, race realists or whatever, you know, like just racist, whatever you want to call them. Like, you know, the, them saying, well, this is what we did and this is all wonderful and just claiming to that or the other extreme that just like, oh, if you're white or if you're from the West, you know, don't claim that this is all evil. You, you have to accept, if you're going to accept one, you have to accept the other and you have to look at what balances out and where we are as opposed to where we were. You have to look at it historically. You can't just pick a segment of time and just say, this is it. This is what we've done. Right? It's, it's wrong. Yeah. Um, nobody articulates what you're saying better than, than Thomas Sowell, a, a book everyone should read, a set of essays called Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Uh, it's less incendiary than the, the title sounds, but the, the, the really interesting thing about so-called Western imperialism, um, you know, and slavery and, and all these bad legacies, the thing that is remarkable about them is that they came to an end. The fact that they existed makes them incredibly unremarkable because the truth is that in almost every society, they had these things. Um, it, the, the slavery was the norm. What was not normal was abolishing it. And having an algorithm that is better than the people who wrote it to get us to that point, that's what makes the Enlightenment special. Uh, it, the, what makes the Enlightenment special is that the, the algorithm and the institutions and the norms are better than the people who wrote it and are practicing it. Um, and that's what has enabled us to eventually, with lots of hard work and pain and sacrifice, to transcend these, these terrible legacies. Um, you know, reading about slavery, uh, you know, slavery was the norm in many parts of the Middle East through the mid-60s. And it was only due to Western pressure that, that you know, us saying, hey, you guys really do need to drop this, that it finally was. And, and a lot of this painting of it is singularly evil. It's not informed by scholarship or facts. It's informed by left-wing activism. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of reading, for example, Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. No, I haven't. 
So it's interesting because I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Or have you ever seen the movie Goodwill Hunting? Yes. So remember when he says, you know, you should read a people's history of the United States, and he says with a thick Boston accent, you know, that'll knock your hair back um, in the accent that people that I grew up with. But that was the kind of worldview that was just pervasive when I was growing up. And it's the history of the United States that talks about the fact that the settlers, ex of course, exploited the Native Americans and brought slaves. And it paints American history as a history of unique evil. Now, there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth behind the fact that there's a lot of evil we have to reckon with. And, you know, in Canada, with its legacy with First Nations, it's very similar. But the thing that is dishonest and disingenuous is the fact that this was in any way unique. What's unique is the fact that we were able to transcend it. And a lot of this desire to make us hate ourselves and hate the West was totally informed by left-wing activism and Marxist activism. From what I can see, it was really kind of a way to try and just promote the, the revolution. It, it really had nothing to do with serious scholarship or or serious thinking. Um, and, and, and as a result now, we're just so um, filled with self-hatred and so self-flagellating that, for example, when it comes to how people like me treat people like you, people who have left Islam or, you know, are liberal Muslims and how people are dealing with that in their own community, this to me is where it misfires in ways that are just inexcusable. You know, when you have someone like Kamala Harris walking out on someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali, uh, I'm just thinking there's something really wrong here. You know, if we pretend to stand up for the oppressed and stand up for minorities, I often find that the way that... So I do agree with most of, if not everything you just said there. And like I said, I've written something tongue-in-cheek about this a while ago. And I'm not a good writer. I pretend I am. Um, but I, and I was really tongue-in-cheek about it. And I said, you know, you can't see the victims for the brown people. It's if you're concerned about the minority Muslims in the West and how they might be treated, right? Think about the minorities in Muslim majority countries and think of who they are. You know the the, the ex-Muslims, the Christians, the moderate Muslims, the, the the Jews in the countries that have Jews still. Um, you know people like the Yazidi. Like these are victims of. These are truly oppressed people of you know, a truly oppressing system of laws and customs. I mean, you know, if you want to call them morals and ethics, you can, but it's 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 also this other thing of, like I said, I, I find I would rather take David Duke or someone like that calling me a packy or a raghead than I would um, this benevolent bigotry of, oh, we have to come fix all your problems. And not only do we have to come fix all your problems, you poor brown people are too facile or you people of color are too facile to have caused your own problems and all your problems are caused by us because you can't even cause them yourself. Like it's this condescension and this, this treating me like I'm a little kid, this, this need to want to protect me. I'm like seriously, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Well, and, and, and also, I mean, I think that's really well articulated and also it, it doesn't actually help solve the problems you're talking about. And the problems you're talking about, you know, what what is it like to be gay in Saudi Arabia or something like that? You know, it's it, it, pretending away the real cause of why that might be difficult isn't helping those people at all. And but what I find, and I talk about them as my tribe because these, the kind of white person you're talking about. I mean, this is the community I really grew up in, and I was never a religious person, but I sort of view this as the sort of religion that I had to leave. I think as close as I've come to a leaving religion experience, it was real. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm curious how many times 
you've been taught you've been told you know well any of the problems in those countries uh, you know it's all it's all the west's fault too you know basically this idea that no matter what the world revolves around white people you know whether whether it's the sort of um uh, Western exception, uh, people who believe in Western exceptionalism or American exceptionalism saying that, well, everything good is what we've given to the world versus those that say, well, everything that the bad, everything bad that the world has ever had is our fault. Um, it, it's just, it's incredibly narcissistic tale and white people are always at the center. And the truth is, of course, is that non-white peoples, you know, they've, they've had their own cultures and their own systems of government for a long time before we showed up. And wouldn't you know it, they had a lot of the same problems we did, whether it was homophobia or misogyny or patriarchy or the whole nine yards. And uh, I, I don't understand where people think that we're so special that we invented these things. You know, we didn't invent algebra. We didn't invent gunpowder. We didn't invent racism or sexism either. The, the really incredible thing is we came up with an algorithm that helped us to realize why we were wrong to adopt those things. And unfortunately, not everyone sees it that way. And when we pretend that the problem is something otherwise, it only condemns exactly the people you're talking about in those countries to continue living under a kind of real oppression that a lot of people like myself can scarcely imagine. Yeah, and it's... Okay, I, I grew up in um, basically the suburbs of Montreal. Uh, we were living... It, it was like The first... Where we lived until about the sixth grade, so until about 10 or 11, was a concept in Montreal where they wanted to have a suburban experiment. You were We were five minutes from downtown, but it was a little separate island off the island of Montreal and they made it like a suburb. Then after that, we actually moved to the true suburbs of Montreal and it was, you know, fairly affluent and, but it was wasp. It, I mean, it was just your typical wasp neighborhoods mm. and there was a lot of that white guilt and well-intentioned ill-directed you know people trying to like they're they're trying to do good things and I'm not saying like they didn't accomplish anything or anything like that but it was just you know you catch a buzzword and oh we have to go do this and you know some of it was student activism which is fine like that, that students learning how to do things and you know figuring out what they want and you know it might be misdirected but they're students and they're young but even from some of the adults it was just it was almost like okay well look at how good we are and you know we're we're making up for all the bad we've done and it's just i don't know if it was a you know something left over from religion um or whatever but it was this this weird and again this is me looking at it from an outsider's point of view and it was just this weird feeling of like why are you trying so hard you don't need to right i mean how many of them how many of them personally engaged in colonial oppression? I mean, how many of them do you think, you know, were in these other countries putting their boot on someone's throat? It's, it's, it's this really ridiculous idea that, you know, I mean, it really is just plagiarized original sin, this idea that you're responsible for the crimes of other people, not for crimes that you committed. Um, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and the converse is that, uh, especially people of color, uh, aren't res in some ways aren't responsible for what they're doing right now. You know, so so this idea that if 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 some if a person you know I'm thinking of recently I'm sure you've read about this fiasco in Washington D.C. with the oh, kids Lord. with yeah I know the kids with the Trump hats and and the part that's been lost in the discussion was this group that was heckling them they call themselves the Black Israelites they're a they're a black nationalist group they're defined as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center but they you know they believe as I understand this correctly 
that they're one of the original tribes of Israel, and they think that the that real Jews are the they call them the synagogue of Satan, and they were taunting. Uh, the kids at the school, they were saying to the black classmates, they were calling them the N-word and saying that their white classmates were going to harvest their organs. Uh, and they were <laughs> they were insulting Donald Trump by uh, calling him a homophobic slur, which I won't repeat. Mm-hmm. But, but what's interesting is in discussions with people about that group, it, it, exactly the type of white person you're talking about, they'd say, well, you, they're angry, you know, they faced so much oppression for so many years, and this is just this is just the natural voice of the oppressed coming out. And I'm thinking... Or they're just racist individuals. You know, they're racist, homophobic individuals. And and this idea that they can't be possibly accountable for what they're saying right now. But meanwhile, every white person is responsible for things that other people did. Um, and, and, and when I hear the experiences of deeply religious people and they talk about the real guilt they felt, whether it was like a Catholic that really felt the the weight of original sin upon them, it's, it's exactly the same concept. Um and it's and it's it is kind of narcissistic in the same. Just a quick little interjection, like it's it, it is that, but it's also um, I don't know if you read this article by James Lindsay, um, the you know like the religious aspects of social justice. Yeah, it's been a yes. I mean, he just put it out on Aereo, like not, not too too long ago, but it's it was a long long article. Was, uh, but he, I mean, it touches on this, but it's and he you mentioned that, and it's it's so true. Like in so if you're if let's say you're Catholic. You can get absolution. You can get salvation, right? There is no absolution if you look at it from a hard left, you know, social justice warrior type of mentality, right? Like where it's confess your sins of patriarchy, whatever, you know, like homophobia, whatever your sin is, confess it. Keep confessing it, but you're never going to be absolved of it. Right, there is no absolution. You're always going to have it on you. Yeah, well, it, well but uh, you know, the, the, you also need to give a bunch of money to the church, and you need to go to yeah. church every week and promote the church. And and there are some similarities between social justice. You know, people who say, well, you need to donate to our organization. You need to um, you need to you know show up for these marches. Of course, you need to stand there and not say anything and be told about how awful you are, even though you haven't done anything. But but you, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it ever goes away, even under Catholicism. And as I understand it, this was you know part of the reasons Martin Luther took a stand against the church is because the church said, well, you can actually buy your way to salvation. Um, and it's it's a it, it's a it's a great business opportunity in the same way that religion is a great business opportunity for many people. Yeah, I mean it's also, but yeah, okay, I, I understand with the you can buy you know the, the indulgences and whatever, or you could have if you donated enough, they would have you know people singing hymns and praises of your loved ones so they would get 24-7 so they would get to a higher level of heaven and all that garbage but if you confessed if you truly confessed especially like on your deathbed let's just say and you did it you know you 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 truly truly confessed and you truly repented you would be absolved of your sins on your deathbed and you would go to heaven right like that was the but there is no real way to do that with social justice, and again, I, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't think he was saying they were exactly religion. I mean, he was being very careful not to say they are a religion, but some religious-like aspects of them. And if you look at that, that was, you know, one of them, like the original sin thing. Yeah, I can't remember who said this recently, you know, because they said something like, "Why are so many atheists so uh, obsessed with this social justice movement?" And and my answer was, "Well, we know a religion when we smell one," even though even if James Lindsay was avoiding calling it 
a religion explicitly, there are just too many similarities and too many of the same problems. I mean, I'm just, you know, a basic lack of respect for evidence. You know, I, I mean, that this whole fiasco this week, uh, it's just been unbelievable how much flagrant disrespect for evidence there is. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I like to think of them both as dogmas. I mean, religion is a problem. Uh, you know, this this hard left social justice or the the, the alt right, hard right, uh, race realism, all that BS. I mean, they they're all different forms of dogma. I mean, the problem at the root of it is dogmatic thinking, and religion is just an aspect of it. So any like you know, if you look at fascism or communism, they were dogmatic ways of thought. They had a lot of similarities to how they spread and how um sorry how they spread and how their their message was a religious not a religious message but that kind of sense right you had these grand meetings and you know you know join up this is the way you have to think so like instead of just attacking and i don't even think attacking is the right way it's just you know you can point all these things out they're different but it's at the root of them they're all dogmas and I think it's, you know, it's instead of saying, okay, well, how do we fight religion? How do we fight social justice? How, how do you tackle dogma would be a better way to go at it. I mean, that's just, you know, like from my way of thinking anyways. Yeah, I think I think we're saying the same thing. I, I guess I didn't used to use the term religion this way until, um, have you ever read Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens? Yes, excellent book. Yeah, yeah it's a great book. I, I understand some people think he plays fast and loose with the terms, but I think the way he uses religion... I think it does make sense to a degree. So in, in his framework, communism, fascism, they're all religions. Humanism is a religion. Liberalism is, is a religion. You know, a, 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 you know, just a sort of a set of ideas that's sort of your starting point. And um, yeah, the question is how dogmatic is it and how much is it willing to change on the basis of new evidence? Which, you know, that that is sort of, if you want to call enlightenment values a religion, you've all know Harari would. I would say that that's what really sets it apart from the other ones, which is that it is willing to change, uh, even if it even if it's even if it changes. I think there was a great expression that said, "Science advances one funeral at a time." Um, even if it advances slowly and painfully, compared to its competitors, uh, it is able to evolve in ways that the others just aren't. Um, you know, we're still arguing about the texts of holy books written. 2000 years ago uh, the enlightenment has no such problem it, it it has older books it will reference but the beauty of it is that if we find something really doesn't work we don't have to take it as something that cannot be altered and cannot be thrown out yeah i mean i, I had a manager when i first started working overseas and it was and he was talking he was talking about you know dealing with the military and the best way to describe it and that this is how i you know if you go back to what your first principles are and that's going to be your foundation that you build everything else on uh, you know, and he used to use the term rigid flexibility, and that's what the Enlightenment has. They have, you know, they have a foundation which is, I don't want to say rigid, but it, it is, you know, a hard structure, but it will shift and will move. So it's like, you know, building your foundations uh, for protection against seismic activity, right? Whereas others that don't, it's, and that's, that's what the Enlightenment has. Like, I think what you're talking about, it's, you know, it, it is, has, it has some rules. And these are, you know, where you're going to build upon, but it can shift and it can move and it can adapt to what's going on around it outside it, right? Whereas the other ones can't. Sure. And and to, to I think that's a great analogy. And I, I to take it one step further, it's it's a foundation of wood, not of stone, 
what do I what do I mean by that? I'm thinking of you know when I was in Japan when I was a kid, uh, I was tagging along with my dad, and you know they were talking about the fact that uh, you couldn't have any structures made of stone because if an earthquake happened, it would just crumble. And the thing about wood is that it could sway and bend and be flexible with earthquakes. So it's it, it's 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 a foundation that's strong, but it's not one that's so uh, implacable that it could crumble under its own weight. Um, so it, it, obviously, you know, and, and, and this, this continued process of improvement and testing and hypothesis, um, it really does distill sort of what are the foundational things you really need and what are the things that keep passing the tests of whatever is thrown at it in ways that other systems just don't. So, you know, if, if you're a, a Marxist-Leninist, people who are truly committed to the cause, like any sort of religious person, is just not willing to update it, even though many of the countries that are doing successfully do. You know, I, I think it's hard to argue that China is still a communist country. I think they sort of did see the error of their ways. Um, and uh, the, the ones that are still thriving are ones that inevitably succumb to some form of enlightenment thinking, even though I obviously would not hold up China as some exemplar we want to follow. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, I think it was Deng Xiaoping who said, it doesn't matter if it's a black cat or a white cat, so long as it kills mice. That That is sort of the spirit of the Enlightenment, but it doesn't mean that there isn't something at the bedrock that that algorithm comes from, just like you were saying. Yeah, and I mean, a couple, maybe not too long ago, I was just thinking, thinking about this, and it was, you know, the, you know, that thing about first principles. And the foundation, you know, like what you said about the wood as opposed to stone, it makes a lot of sense, but I was also just, just recently, I was thinking, okay, what if you think about it not as a foundation of a building or whatever, but you think of it as a garden. So your first principles are the earth and how well you keep that earth and how well you till it. And, you know, whatever you weed out, like the weeds you take out are, okay, these things aren't working, take them out. And then you have what actually, you know, the other things that build upon that are what you harvest, like, you know, whatever garden you're growing. So fruits, vegetables, you know, trees flowers like those are like like the earth itself is your foundation you know, your first principles and everything that builds on that and you know it's it's stable to it's stable but it's very easy to move it's very easy to change dig things out if you don't need them like i was starting to think about it kind of like that mm. yeah i mean that's 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 a great analogy too it's just and 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 a moral system just like uh anything else that's subject to evolution uh the question is often not if it's the strongest, not if it's the fastest, but is it the most able to change when it needs to? Um, is, is it able to adapt? And nothing is more adaptable than, than some kind of moral algorithm that is constantly checking its own premises and constantly testing them and constantly revising them. Um, you know, and, and part of the problem with, I think, what we're seeing right now, this big clash with the sort of social justice movement, is the fact that the, the principles are leading to too many contradictions, you know, when, uh, you know, if, if, you know, especially going back to sort of your well-intentioned neighbors, uh, if their goal is to help oppressed minorities, well, you know, if you, if you sort of give Islam a pass in all circumstances, you're going to end up betraying yourself, uh, an uncomfortable number of times. Um, you know, if you're really going to give a pass to, certain things in your own society that any other type of person would be doing, it would be unacceptable. And, and, and the biggest victims would be brown people themselves. Um, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of curious because I, I know you said that you grew up in a, in a very uh, integrated neighborhood. Um, but I'm sort of curious if you sort of saw any examples of other types of behavior in Canada while you were growing up among people you may have known in other neighborhoods from people that had a different perspective from your family. Okay. Uh, so the first, you know, for the first few years, um, like I said, I lived in that little suburb st- style place close to the city. We went to school in the city. Uh, and that was a, you know, there was, you could see, you know, all colors and, you know, creeds and there was er- people of every type. Then once I finally moved in the sixth grade, that was where it was, like I said, very, very wasp. So, I mean, I had that to begin with, but okay, you know, there was, there were people that were bigoted and I, I faced some of that and it, but it wasn't really, there wasn't that much of it. Um, but there was, a, you know, sometimes there's a little undercurrent of, okay, kind of look down on them, or, you know, oh, we have to treat them slightly different or something. Um, but I, I, that stuff stopped bothering me very early. Uh, it was about 14 or 15. I was taking public transit in Montreal. The seat back in front of me, someone wrote, uh, white power, black caca. And the only word they spelled correctly was caca. And I just started laughing. And I, at that point, I'm like, I can't take this seriously. I mean, what was that? What was that second word again? Uh, white power, black caca. And so caca, what is what? Uh, what caca, C-A-C-A, like shit, like black, black. Oh, okay. And like I said, that was the only word they spelled correctly. And I'm like, there's just no way I can take that seriously at that point. And, you know, I just, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I was like, I said, I was 14 or 15, but right away I was like, yeah, I'm better than you right there. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, but I, I'm sorry. Like, I, I, how am I supposed to be offended at that? I, I'm more offended by the spelling mistakes. I mean, how could you not spell white? If you want to say white is power and you can't even spell it, like, come on, you know, like, yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing when you see photos of these, of, of true white supremacists, you begin to, you begin to see just what exemplars they are of that master race. They're constantly talking about, yeah. you know, is it, and, and, and they like to say, oh, but you know, we created symphonies. And I mean, you were not the people creating symphonies. I'm sorry. There's just, there's just no way. And, and the people who created the symphonies and the great works and, you know, all our advancements, they were never, and I should say never, because obviously someone's going to pick out some example, but they weren't mainstream. They were the outsiders. They were the ones who thought differently. They were, and, and this does not by any means think, okay, take every different thought that comes out there as gospel, but you have to, you know, that's where those thoughts came from. And I mean, obviously someone can say, well, you know, the white supremacists are a minority so that they're an outsider group. It's okay. But we have that system of the enlightenment of, okay, let's, let's falsify this. Let's see where this takes. Like we can, you know, has it has this been tried before? Has it worked? How what did it look like? You have all that, but again, you know, not willing to you know face facts and it, even it, also the hard left. It's just you the it it reminds me of okay. Let's just take a really contentious thing: uh, transgender, right? That's the transition. In some oh, sense, oh boy, oh boy, here yeah. we go. Okay, no, but in some sense, it reminds me of that uh, interview with Ken Ham and. Uh, Bill Nye after their debate on uh, creationism and Ken Ham they were asked like what would it take for you to change your mind right Bill Nye said evidence Ken Ham said nothing no I, I will never change my mind and so when it comes to when it comes to something like the trans issue there are people on both sides who are so intransigent in that it doesn't matter that if a new study or something comes out no no I don't care and, and you're getting this on a lot of stuff it, it's this you know 
the extremes of both ends, the loudest people on both ends, um, are are like that. They're 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 just we don't care what the evidence says. You know what you're talking about with these kids this weekend. You know we don't care what any evidence says. This is our this is our view. This is our narrative. This is how we're going to talk about it. And to hell with anything else. And then you know people who say this might laugh at Ken Ham for saying he won't accept evidence, but they do the exact same thing. Yeah, it's you know I I can understand. Steve, Steven Pinker writes about this really well. It's understandable why, especially in the case of something like uh, transgender people, why there is fear about exploring this scientifically. And and it's the fear is is uh, what's the word I'm looking for. The fear is well-placed because in earlier generations, there were a lot of so-called scientific explanations put out as to why these people should be treated really terribly. You know, when, you know, for example, when being gay was considered a mental illness and you had members of the scientific establishment, you know, freely saying, you know, homosexuality is a mental disorder. It's, it's understandable why people are nervous about approaching this question scientifically. Um, and, and, and we have to be clear that exploring the question scientifically can't mean sacrificing people's underlying um, human worth and human rights. I mean, a, a lot of people talk about this in the context of something like gay marriage, you know, when, when people said, you know, well, well, is being gay natural or not? I mean, let's imagine we lived in a world where being gay was unnatural. And of course, homosexuality is in hundreds of species. So I don't think that's really a debate anymore. But suppose it was. It should have no impact on gay marriage, because it, it doesn't matter if it was natural or not. The question is, do people have equal human rights to engage in uh, social contracts uh, with the same equality as, as straight people? So w- with, the, with the trans debate, you know, people say this idea that, well, you know, is it is it really in their biology or is it in their head? Well, this really, we have to be clear, this has no impact on whether or not trans people should be treated with dignity and respect and with, with all of their rights given to them just like everybody else. But there are people who would use that debate to take that away from them. So I want to, I want to give some credit to some of the people on the left who really want to avoid this debate altogether. It their desire to do so is understandable. Now that being said, what happens when good faith people won't look at this issue seriously? Basically, you have totally ceded that to the really bad faith crazy people that want to actively do those people harm. So I, I, I don't, I don't think ignoring science in this regard is helpful but we we do have to be aware of the bad actors that would want to use it so for example you you mentioned race realists and ethno-nationalists before i've i've gotten in a lot of trouble with these people and i'm you know i'm proud to say that i have um you know they want to take they want to take a what could be a legitimate scientific question about iq or intelligence or something like that to prop up certain racist norms in society um and and this history of using pseudoscience to do so is very well documented and and we do have to be very careful to make sure that those same types of superstitious people aren't given leeway to bring back things that we have worked very hard to defeat um they also want to use it as a justification for immigration policy and we have to be very careful that Good faith people engage in a rational debate about immigration policy because what I've seen happen is because that's been so taboo to talk about, the people who might have even legitimate concerns 
end up being more drawn to the far right crazy people because they're the only people even willing to talk about it at all. Yeah, and that's I mean, okay, this is something along the lines of what I was I was speaking to someone about this recently and sorry, I was speaking to someone about this recently and what I was saying was we're getting a lot of overcorrecting. And it's you know, this okay, let's not engage in this because it can be used by bad actors. So let's go so far the other direction. And you know, and then yeah, so if we're never going to talk about this and then the only people who are willing to talk about this are bad actors. You know, it's it's at this point I'm thinking that well don't talk to bad actors, don't talk well, you know, get this stuff out there. I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know the, the way around it because, because it, yes, there's a problem with, you know, what you're discussing, like, like going back to the transition, there is those problems. But, you know, again, I agree with you, you have to temper the science with, oh, right, this is where the data is leading us now. How do we interpret it? What does this mean? What does this mean for, you know, uh, like, like, like one of the, the stand, one of my stands on this, and again, this, uh, like giving hormone blockers to little kids. I am just no. I'm sorry. I, I I support anyone's decision to do. You know, if you want to change the sex you were at birth or whatever, that's fine. But giving drugs like that to you know kids, like and I'm talking young young kids, right? You know, six, seven, eight years old, like that. That should just not. That shouldn't be something that we should argue about. I mean, there is. You have to be open. You have to accept. You know, we have to have a reasonable debate on this. But, you know, like, I'm locking myself in on this, but, you know, and, and again, I mean, if someone can, you know, if, if all kinds of studies come out where they say, no, no, these, this is all fine, which everything I've read so far, and I'm, I'm not obviously really entrenched in this, and I don't know where all the details, but anything I've read so far doesn't make it sound like giving puberty blockers to kids is a good thing. But, you know, again, like, I'm just picking on one aspect of this, but I agree with you. Right, with you. and and the, the reason the science is important is because, we have to be able to um, – the reason why it's important that good faith people engage in a truly scientific investigation of this is because inevitably what we have to know is what's good for the health of the, of the child. Um, you know, is this harmful to children? You know, and I have to be equally open to the other assertion. Is it harmful for children who really are trans to not do this for them? And that's, you know, it's uh, – you know, my bias is definitely – set against that but i have to be open to that on the basis of better evidence and and it's very interesting there were two studies that came out recently on trans issues uh one of them was at brown university and it was censored by the university that talked about the emergence of transgenderism as a social contagion what they actually found was that people that were members of certain online communities suddenly became either transgender or gender neutral or um or yeah so gender neutral or some other gender affiliation does you know is this only the result of social contagion or is it biological because trans people say and I and I am inclined to believe them when they say this that they really feel that they were born in the wrong gender well you know if it's due to social contagion is that really something you're born with on the other hand there was another study that came out recently that did I think fMRI scans of people's brains that are transgender and what they found was that their brains actually more closely resembled the gender that they identify with. Now, this would be really fascinating if this were true, because then what this is proving is that it really is a biological phenomenon. And then the question is, 
is it some is are, are there two types? Is it some combination? Is some of it really biological, and is some of it social contagion? Again, if we're going to give children uh, chemicals that are going to alter their biology, we have to know the real answer to these questions because going in either direction, we could be harming that child. And you know, I, again, I just want to emphasize: I understand why people are wary of studying this or debating this because the question is are we going to take away their rights and sure enough there are people that would love to use any bit of this debate to take away their rights there are absolutely people like that out there you know and 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 you know if someone really believes in their bones that they were born a man but they identify as a woman you know someone like ben shapiro would say that's just mental illness and it's an absurd belief well you know ben shapiro you know talks to a magic man in the sky every day and the question is if we debunk that belief are we infringing upon his rights to do that? And America has made it trivially, trivially easy to say no. You you absolutely do not have to agree with something, and you don't have to agree with it, especially if it's found false, and you're in no way disrespecting that person's humanity automatically. And I, I hope we can get to a point where we understand the debate over transgender issues in the same way. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, I, this is... a. Again, it, it's very new, and, and people are going to say, well, you know, there, there's been trans people for thousands... You know, you, a Roman soldier, they, they found something recently. Okay, yes, they're, I'm not disputing that, but the way it's being studied, the way it's being talked about, and how it's, um, you know, it, it's in the forefront of, you know, public discourse. That's very new. And, you know, the fact that there's a lot more research coming out, again, I agree with you. We shouldn't, and this is, you know, not just for this issue, this is for everything. Like, wait until... You know, especially if something this new and or something in the public discourse that hasn't been going on for you know very long, let's look at let's look at the, all the evidence very carefully, and we shouldn't discount any of it. And again, like I said, I'm I'm pretty firm on the giving the kids the puberty blockers. You know, I'm I'm a firmly against it, but obviously, if something comes out and you know there's lots of evidence that say okay, in these cases, you know that should be allowed. I mean, you know, like again, like the rigid flexibility thing. You have a, a blanket style policy, but you have the the flexibility within it to look at things case by case, right? Especially when it's biology and it's a human being. There's so many variables at play. Right, and and you know, there have been a lot of theories about it. You know, some people think it has to do with a certain set of conditions when the fetus is in the mother's womb. Uh, sometimes this can affect people. Uh, at least the, the studies show that in, in ways that have nothing to do with necessarily flipping genders. You know, for example, um, there's been some evidence that, for example, girls that for whatever reason are exposed, exposed to more prenatal testosterone when they're in the womb tend to sort of be more interested in pursuits that we would stereotype as more typically male. Um, you know, is it just a matter of those conditions in the mother's womb? We, we simply just don't know yet. Um, and exactly, if we're going to make this decision to to change the biology of a child, we have to know exactly what we're doing. And and you know, again, my bias is is to say exactly what you're saying. I mean, if it was my child, um, I would say absolutely not. When you're 18 years old, it's your body to do whatever you want. Um, I would be very concerned about changing the hormonal balance of a child. But on the other hand, you know, if if this really is, if there is something at the level of the brain where they function better as a person uh, and in the world if 
their brain is working with a body that is correctly um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, correctly calibrated to the 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 gender that they experience. I, I have to be open to the idea that yeah, maybe this is better for them. But but if we suppress the research, we'll never know, and we relegate that debate to to truly bad actors that have nothing but the worst interest of trans people at heart. So it, we don't do anyone any favors by ignoring the science behind such a thing. Yeah, I mean, again, agreed. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to switch gears a little bit and go to something a little less contentious and go back to Islam for a second. Um, but, okay, what you mentioned something earlier about, you know, ex-Muslims. There's a... a, there's a I mean, it's, it's a line in the Quran to talk about the Surat al-Mustaqim which is the you can look at it as, as the narrow path or the true path and that's the path to get to heaven and the path of righteousness right and it's but it's like you're walking on a razor's edge and you can be you can fall off on any side and sometimes you know talking about islam and you know my family's muslim uh you know friends of family it's I, you know like i'm connected to that community even though i don't believe the, the religion anymore um, so talking about it it's the same thing like, like, like talking about Islam it's the same thing I don't want the the bad actors to say okay well let's ban all Muslims let's you know not take anyone in or the the ones on the other side just say oh no everyone's lovely and peaceful let everyone in like I, I don't want those people to monopolize the debate. I mean, come in, give me, give your points of view. But if that's the only debate that's being happened on something like Islam, um, it's, we're not going to solve anything. And again, it puts people, you know, ex-Muslims in a very, very weird position. I mean, if I speak out in defense of the Uyghur Muslims in China, you know, I'm questioned as if whether or not I am a stealth jihadi. And or if I, you know, the if I go the other way and speak out about the treatment of the Yazidis, or the Kurds, or you know, uh, Jews across the Middle East, I get treated like I'm a, you know, I, I'm Hitler, like I'm, I'm Hitler reincarnated. Like it's 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 insane. And it's you know, we want to talk about it. These are issues that need to be discussed. There are, you know, um, this thing that happened in Europe recently. Uh, late last year I think it was Norway or Denmark who said okay we're going to abolish child brides anyone who's come in with a child and I, I'm, I'm getting this wrong because I'm I, I'm going by memory here so I'd have to double check and I'll put a link to the article if I can find it um, that you know we're going to get rid of child brides and people who have come in with child brides we're going to you know have to take a look at those marriages now they didn't want to have this discussion when they started taking in a lot of refugees around 2015 and they just let people in who were you know guy from 25 to 30 married to a girl from like 12 to 15 Ugh. and they've got kids and they're coming in or she's pregnant and they're coming in they're being let in now you want to break that marriage up now if they, these people you know it, these are refugees who've come in how traditional were they do these girls have any education now how how many child brides is the state going to take upon itself and add to an already stressed system because you don't want to have these discussions, you're having to deal with it now, and it's so like that. That's what I'm saying. like. Yo, know, it's it's the, any of these debates, any of these hot topic debates, it, it, 
trying to walk that center. Like you said, you don't want bad actors taking advantage of this information. But at the same point, you know, if you are studying um, transgender issues or something else that's, you know, people go insane about GMOs, um, any of these things, like, you know, if you're, if you're studying any of these really, really contentious issues, you, if you're if you have important data, you want to get it out. But you know, like at what point, like it, like are you censoring yourself? And important information isn't getting out because people are afraid of who might use this. And it's people in the center have to start, you know, talking amongst ourselves more, and just forget the crazies. If the crazies want to come in, we can say, no, here's the data. You're wrong. We can let them talk. But more people in the center have to, and and you know we need to make that path wider so it's a lot harder to fall off that's right and and you know the 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 case about uh child brides is is a great point i mean and and it's really interesting what country did you say that was it was was... was northern norway or denmark i i can't remember for for life of me right now okay you know the, the thing about the nordic countries it's it's really interesting i mean you know i i consider the nordic countries to be among the most ethical societies on earth today. Uh, if you want to talk about just general prosperity, the way they care for the poor, the way they provide health care and education to everyone, and the basic ethics that they're taught, they're among the most ethical advanced societies we have on the planet earth. And I, 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 my heart goes out to them because I think when they started accepting waves of refugees in the wake of the Syrian war, I mean, it really was with the best of intentions. And it's interesting to see for me to see what they're going through because at least in recent history they were not imperialist powers on the same scale as say britain or the u.s um and yet they've they've imported all of the white guilt and perfect case in point when you are paralyzed on the issue of child brides you know that this that this um example of white guilt has gone too far because because child brides should be an easy question to answer the answer should be no you know in, in, in a in a liberal western society we do not marry children we do not accept marriages to children and you know it still happens in the u.s there was a case recently where there were some laws on the books that still allowed it in certain states and it's being overturned but this is not a contentious ethical debate the answer is simply no and are you doing right by that new girl that has arrived in this country by supporting this kind of marriage? Are you doing right by the society at large by supporting men who want to engage in these kinds of marriages? And do you want men that engage in these kinds of marriages in your society if they're not willing to adopt the norms and customs of your own country? And by the way, we should have the backbone to say those norms and customs are better. It is better when we do not allow children to be married. and 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 the extent to which we've been gaslit with the best of intentions by this leftist activism into hating ourselves is the extent to which, A, we enable the far-right crazy people to say, hey, look at what these people are bringing in. Let's just not let any of them in, even though obviously there are millions of people that we would benefit immensely from having in our society that want to adopt all these values and want to contribute positively. And we should help if we can because they're fleeing you know, terrible conditions. This is an easy way for people on the far right to say, nope, just don't let any of them in, versus really being discriminating in a truthful way and saying, yeah, there are certain things you must accept here. There are certain things you must assimilate into, not because we are better, but because these values are better. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's, again, I really agree with that. And I want to bring up a case 
where it kind of exemplifies that. And it was uh, late last year, or was it early this year, the the Syrian guy, the Syrian refugee in Canada, the trial had started. So I don't know where it is at now because there was no, there have been no news stories that have come out. Um, he was charged with killing, after three months of coming into Canada, he was given permanent residency, which shouldn't have happened. I don't, I, I, I don't agree with that, but that's not the part of the, the issue. But he was charged with killing this 13-year-old girl and she was found dead in a park just outside of Vancouver, like in a suburb of Vancouver. Uh, and now all the, and right away that the people are going on the extreme ends, oh, you see you let in an ISIS uh, murderer. Oh, well, it's just, you know, all refugees. Like you just had this, the insanity on both ends and there was no talking in the middle. Now, yes, we need to help people. These people are fleeing horrific things. It's laudable to let them in. But at the same point, if we're going to help them, let's help them. So I believe Canada took in about roughly close to 25,000 refugees in 2017, like uh, Syrian and Iraqi refugees. So from, from the fight against ISIS. Okay, you've let them in. It's amazing. These people have a much better life. But what did you let them into? There are communities, apparently, this was a story that just came out recently. You know, there, there's communities where they haven't seen a translator in almost the whole time they've been here. So what kind of help are you really giving them? This guy who, you know, who allegedly, and I, he killed this girl. I mean, it's, I, I think that's pretty much a given right now. Uh, did he have some sort of PTSD? I mean, I, I've been in war zones. I was in Afghanistan. Uh, I was in convoys that were shot at. I've seen some gross stuff, but nothing near what a soldier would see. And if this guy had been in Syria for, you know, while ISIS was there and you know, they'd taken over his village or whatever, what if he was having some you know weird PTSD style reaction and he thought that was his daughter or his sister or some young girl from his village and he was trying to protect her for what from whatever he thought and end up killing her? Or what if he is really a sicko, right? Just letting people in and saying, here, go live is not enough. They need you know, obviously they need some sort of counseling. They need something. I mean, these guys, these people have seen some of I, I can't even begin to imagine the horrors they must have witnessed or been through, right? So if you want to help, help. If, if So if you bring in 25,000, you can't help them, but you could bring in 12,000 and you could give them the proper help they need. It would be better to bring in the 12,000 and help them properly than letting in 25,000 people and just saying, here, go live. Right. And, and we have to, I mean, it's hard to say this, but we have to be, again, we have to be radically honest about the fact that someone can be fleeing a war zone and not be a good person. It's, it's hard to say that, you know, we, we sort of have this idea, sort of the same thing that, well, you know, in this leftist ideology that, oh, well, they're refugees, they're oppressed, they're the good people. Well, no, we don't know anything about them as individuals. I mean, there's any there's any span of individuals in that group of people. The question is, do we want to help them at the sake of compromising certain values that we shouldn't compromise? You know, if, if someone wants to come to this country and um, do not want to adopt, uh, you know, equality for women, equality for gays, uh, this is not the country for them. Now, to be fair, we've, you know, in, in America, we've seen this movie many times before. You read what people were saying about earlier generations of immigrants, and much of the rhetoric was very similar. You know, um, even even uh, Jews who had been here for some time, when there were new waves of Jewish migration, uh, in many cases they were very opposed to it, because they said, you know, look at these people; their customs are different from ours, and this is going to make our life more difficult living here. And we already have difficulties living here because we're already seen as on the outside of society, even if we're fully assimilated Americans. And you know, through every wave, 
uh, America has survived and gotten better. I mean, I, I can't really say that part of the reason we didn't become the most powerful country in the world is because we enabled ambitious people from all over the planet to come here and realize whatever kind of life it is they wanted to live. But there was a big difference, and this is tying back to what you said earlier, it was absolutely expected that you would assimilate. This was not even a debate. It was, you will become American, maybe to an extreme. You know, my grandmother, her first language was Russian. She acted like she got off the Mayflower just yesterday. I mean, <laughs> and, and she would start hating the new waves of immigrants, which drove my mother insane. Drove my mother absolutely insane. I mean, she just acted like the biggest flag-waving, you know, barbecue-having American. And, you know, her, her, her parents were both refugees from Russia and Eastern Europe. And, um, you know, so I, I, it's not like I want to say I want to go back to that necessarily because there then there really was this movement like you threw away your old culture. There's this really creepy uh, documentary about Henry Ford. Henry Ford, of course, imported a lot of immigrants to work at his plant. And he actually would have a melting pot ceremony for them where they would come into this room with the flags and attire of their home country. They would literally walk into a pot that had a ladder into the ground and then they would come out dressed differently with citizenship papers waving American flags. And it was saying, you know, you are now American and that is behind you. You leave that you leave that behind. And I don't think we really want that. I mean, you know, there are certain aspects of multiculturalism that are wonderful. You know, the fact that you can get good Indian food almost anywhere now, it's great. Um, but, but I will say that there is this sort of open disdain now in leftist circles for the melting pot in favor of the salad bowl, so to speak. Jay, Jay Shapiro used this analogy and I really liked it, where... You know, these Linda Sarsour types say, no, no, don't assimilate, never assimilate. I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem when you're actively promoting a lack of certain social cohesion in the name of making multiculturalism uh, a, a bigger value than the core values of the society. And, and it, again, this is another tightrope to walk, right? Because you don't want to be bigoted, openly bigoted towards someone just because they're from another society. But we need to be strong enough to say that there are certain key values that we are not compromising on. And and the extent to which, you know, you, you abrogate individual freedoms due to religious commitments, you know, maybe this country isn't for you. And 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 we accept that whatever group is immigrating here, there are lots of people that would be happy to to sign that contract and be a part of the greater society. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's on immigration I agree with you one hundred percent there. Um I mean, the refugees are slightly different because, you know, these are people fleeing and it's an immediate, you know, it's it's not like someone who's immigrating and they've gone through a process or whatever, right? Like people who are, um, you know, whatever, call them illegal Im immigrants or undocumented, you know, what, what, like that's, that's a different problem there than people who are coming through the system. And then refugees are, again, a completely different thing. I mean, it's it's no there's no way you can do a process like immigration for refugees like you take them in and it should, that that's something that happens after the fact right and don't get me wrong there are plenty of stories of refugees but getting back to the immigration thing it's uh, and what you're talking about the values uh, I was speaking to a few people the other day about this um, Canada takes about eight, eighteen months to two years to fulfill the whole immigration process during that time you, I mean there's there's plenty of time where you you know you're just waiting for documents sending things back and forth. Why not use that time to say, okay, you know what? These are the values that Canada has or country X has. You're going, sorry, so you're going to country X. This is the values that country X has. And so in the immigration process, explain to the person who's applying for immigration, this is what you're moving into. This is what you're 
expected to do and these are our values i mean it, it's like i know finland was trying to do it at one point and when my when my family moved to canada in 75 my dad my mom and my dad took a two-week course put out by both the federal and the provincial governments on you know just that like we expect you to respect other people's rights you know like this is you know these are this is what the government will give to you and again talking about your your rights and your freedoms and also some of your obligations as a citizen like i mean you you do have obligations as a citizen and you do have obli- and my father i mean he was given so many opportunities um he he started up a factory after a while like him and a few friends have a few years after us moving here and he'd been given so many opportunities people would come up and say oh you know you're from india or your wife's from pakistan uh, i know this guy he's he, he came here as a tourist but he wants to stay here you know he'll work for you for less money and my dad he's like no he's like he he, he refused to do that he you know because he said i came here legally it took me all this to come here i know other people have come here legally they've come through the system these are the people i want to give a chance to someone who's just trying to skirt the system i, I don't want to help you know th- there is a responsibility that you have especially if a country that's taken you in you do i'm not saying you have to genuflect and praise thanks every morning or whatever but you do owe them a, a you know a little modicum of gratitude. You owe them something. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to say. It's I think you said it well. There are rights and responsibilities as a citizen, um, and and it's it's not. But I don't think it's asking too much, even of refugees fleeing, that they still need to um, take those things seriously. Even if even if they're here through no. Even if they're here through no choice of their own, um, I, I don't think it's too much to ask that they take those things seriously. I mean, we, we should be generous if we can be generous, um, but it's not. It shouldn't be at the sacrifice of values that we have that are good and 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 you know it's 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 weird for me to say this, but that are better than some of the norms in other parts of the world. Um, uh, uh, you know, sorry, it, it, I'm just gonna sorry, I don't, I'm just gonna interrupt you for a second. I didn't mean to imply that. Like, if we we bring in refugees, that's what I was talking about. Let's help them. But let's help them assimilate. Let's help them get along better in here, and show you know not just bring them in to here go living within the side of your Canadian now or you go, know, but that should be part of what the help we're giving them is here are our values. This is what we like in our country. I mean, they did a, a thing in one of the cities in Canada in Calgary, where public pools were being given um, uh, segregated swim time so that refugee women could go swim. Now, I understand that, and it's. You know, in some senses, that's laudable, but that should be done again on a pool by pool basis. It shouldn't be the city government enforcing that because they're enforcing some sort of religious segregation, right? If the community themselves, you know, so there's a community, there's a a part of Calgary where there's a number of refugees. If if some of those people from there or some from some groups said, look, you know, they the the women want to try to go swimming, but they're embarrassed. You know, these are their cultures. Would you mind doing it? And that one pool. On its own, the, the the citizenry in that neighborhood, whatever decided that, that's a different thing than the city of Calgary saying, okay, all pools need to now have segregated swim times. You know, the, the, those are two very different things. And well, well, but that's see now, but that's an interesting fault line, right? Because I, I, you know, I don't know what the laws are in Canada, but um, you know, in in America, I mean, and America has a much deeper history of this, right? But but as soon as you get into segregating facilities like that on the basis of gender or culture or race i mean that that evokes in some ways a very harsh legacy i mean people died trying to um people died trying to undo that system um you know and it's one of these interesting things should a pool 
or any other facility uh, go back to the days of certain types of gender discrimination that we fought very hard in our society to overcome. There was a case in Germany sort of similar where the pool started doing it because a lot of the young men were sexually harassing the women in the pool because, you know, for whatever reason, I guess this was just not the – either a co-ed pool was not the norm or certain norms towards women were more acceptable where they came from. And, of course, we have problems with sexual harassers in our own society. And, yeah, should the pool bow to pressure or should they say, well, no, you're in this country now. It is co-ed and you don't sexually harass women. And, and it, it's interesting. You talk about women feeling uncomfortable. I could totally see that being one of the cultural differences. And in that case, I could totally see the argument that this is just the pool being um, gracious to the people who are just aren't used to it and sort of helping them get acclimated. I, I, I don't know where I stand on that debate. I can understand some people, you know, for example, in Switzerland, I was reading that that, that some Muslim students didn't want to shake the teacher's hand. And I guess in Switzerland, it's a big thing. You shake your teacher's hand. And they actually forced a Muslim student to shake the teacher's hand. I don't know how I feel about that. I yeah. can come down on either side of that argument. Yeah, I mean, like I said, again, these are, you know, these aren't things that we can... Okay, here's a, a quick fix. I, these are things that need to be talked about. And, you know, and there there's little nuances in there. How far do you go? You know, like, okay, so we'll segregate the pool for six months... And that'll give you know the women a chance to get used to going to the pool, and then you know maybe they'll get better used to it. Or you know the the, the shaking hands thing in Switzerland. I, I think the after that, and I, I again I'm going by memory here because this happened uh, la, uh, sometime last year, but they might have passed a law that if you aren't willing to do that, you can't become a citizen or something like that. It was it was some some bizarre thing because each canton in Switzerland has some control of how they control immigration. So they might have, mm. they might have done, I, again, like I said, I, I'm going by memory here. Um, so anyone who's listening to this, please don't take this as gospel. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, but I mean, like, these are all things that we need to discuss. These are all things and, you know, helping people is good, but let's help them. Let's honestly help them. Don't, you know, just opening your doors and just saying, come in, you know, how it's not sustainable. I mean, there's just no way that's sustainable, Right. You can talk about all, and, and my, my family is a perfect example. You know, my, my parents, my aunts and uncles, friends of the family, you know, came in here. My, my dad showed up to Canada. We, we came to Canada. My dad had $12 in his pocket. Wow. Um, and then, like I said, we came here at the end of 75. By 1980, him and three of his friends bought a plastics factory. And, you know... And, it, you know, that was when, like, you know, we had that huge recession when Carter left and Reagan came in. And it survived all that, and it did really well. It provided us with, you know, a very comfortable living. My dad ended up, you know, his factory ended up employing about 20 people, 30 people. I mean, that, that's a success story. And, yes, that does happen, but it does, you know, it took, like I said, it took my dad five years to be able to get to that point where he could do it. So it's not like, oh, immigration is going to help our economy. Yes, it does over the long term when it's people who actually are invested in that society, right? So, you know, we have to have these kinds of talks. What's the best way to do it? You know, you can't just force it, obviously. Like, hey, forced integration, forced, seg- you know, forced secularism, forced... You can't force freedom on people. You have to show them that it's a better way. And I think that's where we're failing a lot. Um, you know, just the all this, the rhetoric is getting too much. And I... I, I I mean, I see some glimmers of hope where people are just getting fed up. Uh, sorry, like I said, I see, I see some glimmers of hope where people are just getting fed up. And hopefully that it, it, it's starting to fix this. 
Yeah, and, and we have to be willing to have this discussion before the far right takes over everywhere and they just shut the border completely. And in some cases, that's the reaction we're starting to see. Okay. Um, you know, we, we do not want the alternative for Deutschland to take power in Germany. But if you stretch people enough and make it taboo to have this discussion, I think inevitably that's what's going to happen. And, yeah. um, and, yeah. and how well served will those people be by people like us when and if that happens? Yeah, I mean, like Arlie Rizvi had a... Um... He talked about it and, you know, he, he said, okay, well, think of it like, a, you know, your house is on fire and, um, uh, you know, a, a, and no one's agreeing that it's on fire. And that that's the same thing. I, I, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but mine was a little bit harsher. And I said, you know, I was talking about Trump at that point because it was during the American election. It's like when it comes to the one issue of Islam, you know, Hillary was not talking about it at all, really, you know, except for the same platitudes. Whereas so it was like, okay, if you think your house is on fire... Trump might be coming up saying, yeah, I'll put the fire out by throwing napalm on it, which is not a good way to do it. And it's, you know, kind of counterproductive. It's not going to save your home where he is. at least He was at least talking about it, no matter how badly, no matter how insanely. And he wasn't, you know, and you weren't getting anything from Hillary, really. You weren't getting anything like that. So if you were a single issue voter and that was your issue, well, I'm going to go with the guy who's at least giving me a solution, no matter how crazy. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I get into this argument with people in America just endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. And and I really do think that the, you know, the sort of ideological divide we talked about at the beginning, I think that is the origin of, of where the problem is right now. And, and, you know, some people ask me, they say, well, why do you focus on this so much? That This is exactly why. This is exactly why. Because this is what leads to the rise of far-right parties, far-right populism. And until we get our house in order, I, I don't really see it changing. And, and, I, and I, don't, I, I don't want that to be true because people like your father who come to this society and make a positive impact and, and are part of the reason why countries like America and Canada are so successful, we are, we are harming ourselves if we enable those who want to keep even those people out, uh, from, uh, if we enable them to do so. It's to the cost of our own society and to the cost of our into the cost of our sort of national soul. Um, you know, I, I, I realize it's a little different in Europe because, you know, S- Swedes are from Sweden and Germans are from Germany. And, and, and it's true. American Canada is a little different because countries is one that welcomes people like your father and my ancestors. And that's part of the reason why we've come to be some of the most important countries in the world. Yeah, and okay, going back to the values thing, this is, again, something I, I said tongue-in-cheek. You know the the Michael Shermer thing? I can't remember if it's Shermer or if it's Dawkins. He said, it's good to have an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. Exactly, yeah. In the same way, it's amazing to have an open society. Like I, I love the fact that Canada is an open society, right? But it shouldn't be so open that we let our own values fall by the wayside. That's right. And And by the way, to be fair, if we, I think questioning our own values is good, insofar as it's done uh, in good faith and from a place of reason, because that's how we improve. And, and, and I think some people think, you know, oh, don't throw our values away. You know, not losing our values, I think it, what it really means is not losing that sort of, that perspective of reason and debate that allows us to self-improve. So in other words, losing our values, what does that mean? Well, a lot of conservatives will, will you know, oh, geez, you know, women used to work in the home and the, the family used to be a sacred unit. I don't think we really want to go back to the time when women were relegated to the home. And it's good 
that we questioned those cultural values and changed accordingly. I think it's good, you know, racism used to be the norm, and it's good that we fought against that. You know, so I don't want to say that oh well, let's not let's let's not lose our values. Let's not lose the algorithm that allows our values to improve. But that is what some progressives are calling for, and I and I. I think I share your concern. I think I think that it's dangerous, dangerous and detrimental to the people that they want to help the most. Like maybe values is the wrong term, because yes, the the family structure, the you know the values of the woman staying at home, or you know things like racism, those are not values we want. But are those values compatible with the first principles you're talking about? So we shouldn't let our first principles fall by the wayside, and we should always, like you said, we should check them. Like the, we should, okay, do these still stand up? You know, we have a system to falsify them. We have an error correcting system. Let's use it to make sure that even our first principles are not betraying us. Totally agreed. Un- unfortunately, I think I have to go. Oh, no, that's no uh, problem. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, if you want to send me any links or anything, I'll post. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. We'll, no, yeah. we'll do it again. Oh, for sure. Anytime. Um, I'll let you go and have a good night. Thanks again. You too. Bye.